Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, everybody. I got a great one today. You know, for a change. But this time I mean it. Look, I'll be frank with you. This this podcast is inconsistent at at best. But today you're finally going to get something out of listening. I I swear. Two guests today. I do that a lot. Almost never works out. But this time I have a gem. Two great guests. Ryan Bussey, who has been on before. And you know that if I have a guest more than once, it's because they were nowhere near as bad as my normal guests. Ryan was a prominent member of the gun industry and of the NRA, but he broke with them in 2013 after the NRA scored the background check piece of the gun control legislation we were trying to pass and failed to pass uh, in the Senate in the wake of Sandy Hook. My other guest is Nicole Hockley. Her son, Dylan, was one of 19 first graders murdered by a very disturbed young man with an assault weapon at uh, Sandy Hook Elementary, and she and a number of other Sandy Hook parents formed a group, Sandy Hook Promise. Sandy Hook Promise has been around for almost 10 years now, and what Nicole and the others have done with their grief and and trauma is, is so admirable. Of course, they lobby for gun control legislation, and Nicole was successful in making progress after Uvalde with the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. But a very large and significant role that Sandy Hook Promise plays is in preventing school violence. And they have been successful in preventing uh, school shootings and preventing suicides. As you'll hear Nicole say, it is a promise that she has kept to her son, that she will do everything she can to prevent this from happening to other kids and, and other families. And she is quite amazing. So this really, this really is a good one. Um, well, as I record this, I do not know what the judge in Florida is going to do in the Donald Trump case of the purloined top secret documents. This, of course, is about the former president removing troves of highly classified documents from the White House and storing them at his uh, Florida home, Mar-a-Lago, which is Spanish for bad lumber. Mar-a-Lago. I took Spanish in grade school, and I believe that is the translation, mar being roughly marred or unsound or just bad, and lago uh, the Spanish plural of log, so uh, logs, uh, bad logs or bad lumber. Again, this was grade school Spanish. Miss Boondorf, my fifth grade teacher in Minnesota, at the time there were no elementary school teachers in suburban Minneapolis who spoke Spanish. So Miss Boondorf uh, was learning the damn language when we were. So I can't swear about that translation. Frankly, I don't know why you would name a luxury resort bad lumber. Uh, But there is a whole bunch of stuff about Trump that makes absolutely no sense to me at all. Take, for example, when, when during his first run for president, he bragged at a campaign rally, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, of course, he, he didn't mean shooting some guy who is carjacking a Mercedes from a dowager and pistol whipping her. Frankly, in that scenario, you'd pick up votes. Am I right? A lot of votes. No, candidate Trump at the time was talking about taking out 
a gun on Fifth Avenue and shooting any random pedestrian or several, I guess. And he was saying that he wouldn't lose any votes. And I think he might have been right, but I don't think it means that he would not have been arrested and tried for assault with a deadly weapon, presuming the person or persons he shot were just random folks walking down the street. Am I right? I'm, I'm right. I'm right. Well, I think the same thing's going on here. I think what Donald Trump is saying is I, I can take classified top secret national security documents, which don't belong to me and which not stored properly by the proper authorities would pose an incredibly serious national security threat. I can take those documents containing information that in the wrong hands could endanger human assets we have around the world. Folks who are risking their lives to protect the security of our nation, I can box them up and take them to my now main residence, bad lumber, and do whatever the hell I, I want with them. And just like shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, he might be right that he won't lose the support of his people. But I think he'd also be prosecuted for this kind of thing, just as he would have been if he had murdered a random pedestrian on Fifth Avenue. You can't murder people and not expect to face some kind of consequences. Now, next week on the podcast, I will be having Neil Katyal, the former acting solicitor general of the United States during the Obama administration. Katyal has argued more U.S. Supreme Court cases than any other minority lawyer in American history. That's what I've read in a, in a number of places. And I'm going to ask Neil if by more U.S. Supreme Court cases than any other minority lawyer, if, the, if that includes Jews, Jewish lawyers, which I highly doubt that it does, but we will see. But I will be talking to Neil about the whole panoply of legal challenges facing former President Trump. He's got a, a few legal problems in addition to the purloined classified documents, including, of course, the little matter of the attempted coup and all the crimes that that entails, his whole uh, Fulton County, Michigas. And then you got your tax evasion and fraud, and you got your civil suits of all kinds. So that will be the podcast we drop next Sunday. And by the way, that one with Neil Katyal also promises to be much better than your typical, predictably disappointing uh, Al Franken podcast. A couple of other pieces of business before we turn to Ryan Bussey and Nicole Hockley. Uh, we have midterms coming up. Things are looking better for Democrats. That whole overturning Roe thing. You know who doesn't like that? Most people. Then there's a little matter of what President Biden and others are calling MAGA Republicans. And that's not unrelated to the top secret documents the former president has been keeping uh, in his sock drawer. MAGA Republicans are rallying around Trump because to them, the FBI raid is yet more evidence that the deep state has it in for Donald Trump, forgetting the actual history uh, of these documents, of course. But enough Americans have been paying enough attention to the January 6th hearings to get it by now that this election wasn't stolen, that Trump was told over and over again that he lost, that he tried to steal the election every lame way he could and failed because everything he tried was meritless and, and sleazy, and ultimately very illegal, until he was left with only a violent coup attempt which he allowed to go on for more than three hours before it was clear it wasn't going to work. In this election cycle, Trump has endorsed a whole bunch of nutcase MAGA candidates, including a few who literally were there in Washington on January 6th to try to steal the election, and who continue to assert that the election was stolen in spite of the massive, massive, undeniable evidence to the contrary, these Republicans, these MAGA Republican candidates, many of whom are now hilariously trying to cover their nutcase tracks, these people are a threat to our democracy. These people refuse to engage in our democracy in good faith. 
The Republican Party has destroyed truth. They've destroyed civility. They have destroyed the Republican Party, and they are well on their way to destroying the world's oldest democracy. President Biden is absolutely right. So you got to get out there, folks. You got to vote. Of course. Of course. Of course. You have to tell your family to vote. Of course. Unless they're on the other side, in which case, tell them that you won't vote if they won't vote. But get out there on the doors. Get on the phones. I can't tell you how much that helps, and it's fun. Also, one last thing. I may be coming to your town. I'm the only former U.S. senator currently on tour tour. I'll be in Burlington, Vermont on September 16th, in Long Beach, California, September 24th, San Luis Obispo, September 28th, Los Angeles on September 30th, and Mesa, Arizona, October 1st. You can go to alfranken.com for all that all that info. Okay, now it's time for a great one, and this time, I mean it, Ryan Bussey is fantastic, but Nicole Hockley is, to me, an inspiration. You are going to love, love, love this one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We have an unusual podcast where we have two admirable individuals, uh, Nicole Hockley and Ryan Bussey. Ryan's been on the podcast before. He wrote a book called Gunfight which was about the gun industry, which he was part of. He was uh, actually a big guy in, in a way in the NRA and then left uh, after Sandy Hook, basically, or after the NRA. When the NRA scored votes against Tester on the Mansion Toomey thing, essentially. Just on doing background checks, right? Yeah, pretty rudimentary thing. But yeah, they decided to use that for political leverage, too. And so Ryan is uh, a gun industry guy who left the... Who, NRA and uh, we did a great podcast together. And Nicole Hockley lost her her son Dylan at Sandy Hook almost ten years ago, and what she's done with it is pretty amazing to me. She she co-founded right uh, Sandy Hook Promise. Yes, and Sandy Hook Promise does a lot to avert mass shootings. That's what you guys do. That's part of what you do. You also lobby for uh, gun reform and successfully this last uh, year after Uvalde. And uh, we've met a couple times. So let's let's get started. Uh, Ryan, the, the gun industry seems to be doubling down on uh, being awful. Yeah, so... I think you're right about that, Alan, and I assert 
in my book, and I and I think it's true that much of our the trajectory that we experience on the political right, each time you think it can't get much worse, somehow it does get worse. Um, horrific events aren't capitalized on to make things better. There's a segment of the right that capitalizes on them to make money and grow power and, in essence, make things much worse. And that really started with Columbine, and it really very tragically and sadly caught a lot of wind and heat after Sandy Hook, and it's happening again now. Many of the most egregious marketing and advertising practices, well, the man card campaign um, that is associated, obviously, with Sandy Hook, it's just much worse than that now. And so if the gun industry is an indicator about where our nation is headed politically, then we've got a lot of work to do. You know, uh, after Evaldi, I was in a green room with you, Nicole, at CNN, and you were basically meeting with members of Congress on both sides. And you've very consciously been meeting, been someone Republicans will talk to. Can you talk about that? Yeah, thanks, Al. Um, we've worked really hard at Sandy Hook Promise to ensure that we remain above the politics and just focus on things that everyone can support because no one is pro-gun violence. But you have to get past the arguments and the fighting in order to really work on the solutions. And that's what we've been focused on with our programs in schools and with our policy work in, in terms of where can we agree and where we don't agree, where are we comfortable with compromise in order to take a step forward that will help other people. And, and that was a big part of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was really um, being in the room at the table when these discussions were taking place and help draft some of the legislation so that, you know, we didn't get everything that either side of the argument wanted, but we took a step forward. And that just helps lead to another step forward. And that's the way that we get things done. Well, everything that the other side of the argument wants is uh, <laughs> where where it is or where it was before this legislation, which did a few things. Uh, you can't buy a semi-automatic now unless you're 21 now. That was part of it, right? There's an enhanced background check, uh, that's right, for gun buyers who are between the ages of 18 and 21. So it's really allowing for a, a search on their juvenile records to see if they are demonstrating any of the at-risk factors that would mean that further investigation was needed. It's not an outright ban on purchasing firearms, which is more what we would have liked to see uh, for under age 21. But again, it's a it's a step forward. So if someone has been abusing animals or done crimes that as an adult would mean that they couldn't purchase a firearm, um, that should show up now. It's important, Al, to note that um, the industry fought very hard against that outright mm -hmm. prohibition on 18 to 21 year old purchasing. Um, and they did that because they do not want to separate the way AR-15s are regulated from other firearms. They want to claim that the AR-15 is exactly the same as all other sorts of guns. So it should be regulated the same as all other sorts of guns. Obviously, that's <laughs> that's <laughs> totally untrue. It yeah, it's as foolish well, as it sounds. There's a lot of totally untrue stuff. And yeah, but that's but that's the reason that didn't happen. Um, and that's a throwback. The reason it exists at all is a throwback to it's proof that our laws have not kept up with our changing society. Right. The reason you can purchase 18 year olds can purchase long guns, hand uh, rifles at 18 and handguns at 21 is because back in the day, meaning like the ye old days of 20 years ago, handguns were the dangerous thing. Rifles were the things that 18 year old kids bought to go hunting. Well, right. now we've had this proliferation of AR-15s in our culture and the law has not kept up with the changing culture. Let me ask you something, Ryan. Do people go they do go hunting with AR-15s, but why Why is that hunting? I, I'm from Minnesota. We have uh, a long tradition of gun ownership for sport, for, for hunting. Why, why would anyone who hunts and does it as a, a, you know, a family thing, does it for meat, <laughs> why would they... Use an AR-15. Why? How many to bring down a deer? I mean, people used to hunt before there were semi-automatic weapons, right? Yeah. So to, to to get to your point here, first off, 
Full disclosure, some people do use AR-15s to hunt. It's a misnomer for the most part, and the industry understands the cultural significance of this. That's why they have forced the gun to be renamed the MSR, as in modern sporting rifle. Everybody in the industry, and I, and I talk about this in my book, how it all happened, but they tell everybody in the industry, don't call it an assault weapon, even though the industry used to. Don't call it an AR-15, even though that's what most people in the industry do. Call it an MSR, modern sporting rifle. And the reason that's important is because the industry, the NRA, the NSSF, they all get that hunting is a culturally accepted thing in our country. So they're appropriating the cultural acceptance of outdoor activities and hunting onto the assault rifles. So do a few people hunt with them? Yes, a few people do. It's not a great hunting gun because it's actually a very small cartridge. You know, it's not a powerful hunting cartridge. The reason some people use it is because the same reason the military uses it. It's very low recoil. It's very easy for neophytes to shoot. It stays on target with rapid follow-up shots. And again, these aren't generally accepted, preferable things in hunting. And, and I hate to, to say this because I just don't like to talk about it. But the truth is that a young kid shooting an AR-15 can shoot it very fast and accurate. That's what it was designed to do. Uh, let's talk a little bit of history. And then, we'll, and then we went over this in your last time you're on, on the podcast which is, of course, in 1994, there was an assault weapons ban passed, and that expired in 2004. And did Bush veto it, or did it just die? In, in so the, the law had a sunset provision that mm -hmm. mandated that the, the next president had to re-up it. Nobody could really envision a president that wouldn't re-up it. In fact, Bush, during his first term, indicated that he was in support of re-upping it. And obviously, he won re-election. And soon after, in what looked like a payback to the NRA, he just did nothing. And by doing nothing, it sunsetted. It went away. And of course, then the industry went to town and started developing these much more lethal AR-15s, including the coal, the weapon that your your son and 19 other kids and what was it six adults in the six school adults. yeah so that was as a bushmaster was that that one yeah it was a remington bushmaster and that was um ryan mentioned the marketing and advertising and, and i was also part of the lawsuit against remington uh, in, in order to get the discovery documents so we could make more of that public and get regulations around the sales and marketing. So ads like the man card and some of the more um, heinous ads that we've seen since then, as Ryan referred to, um, aren't allowed to, to go and, and target young people, frankly. Yeah. And that gun was designed for killing people in close quarters. Right, Ryan? Yeah. So that it's important to note that the modern AR-15 was very purposefully designed to do a set of things very, very efficiently. And the, the best analogy I've used for people who aren't cloaked in gun terminology, and, and they often, you often hear things, you alluded to this out like, um, well, an AR-15 is just like all other guns. It's just a, it's just a semi-auto this. It's just, well, think of it like cars, right? All cars are cars. They have four wheels. They have a steering wheel. They have a motor. They have, but a pickup truck is not the same as a Formula One car. Think of an AR-15 like a Formula One car. It's designed to do something very specifically, very fast. It corners exceptionally well. It needs to be heavily regulated because you don't put a 16-year-old kid in a Formula One car that can accelerate to 140 mile an hour in like three blocks, right? So in some ways, an AR-15 is like all other guns. It has this, these set of features like all other guns, but it's very specifically designed just like a race car is. Nicole, uh, let me talk to you about what you did with this and what some of the other families did with this by uh, forming Sandy Hook Promise and what you do. Because everyone listening to this um, can't imagine going through what you and the other families went through. And so many other people have been going through in this country. There's so many. How many mass shootings have there been in the last year say? <laughs> I have lost track, but more than one per every day that we've we've uh, had so far this year. It's it's continuing to escalate, and 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 I keep a track specifically on school shootings as well. And you know, kids are only just going back to school right now. And I know last week alone we helped avert two planned school shootings through our programs. So 
you know, the violence is still out there and it's becoming more prevalent and the kids are, are accessing these weapons, which really um, not only speaks to any sort of restrictions on semi-automatic rifles with high capacity magazines, but also really speaks to safe storage. But our, our job at, at Sandy Hook Promise, of which, you know, not every single family who is impacted at Sandy Hook um, is part of Sandy Hook Promise. I want to be really clear on that. We don't represent all the families, but the Bardens, Sherlock's and Hockley's that are involved, we're, we're very focused on upstream violence prevention. So rather than directly tackle the gun itself, although we do heavily get involved in gun safety uh, and gun reform, we're really focused on what can we do to help recognize at-risk behaviors and help intervene before someone picks up a weapon or a firearm to hurt themselves or someone else. We're, we're really focused on um, truest meaning of prevention and when people are showing leakage, uh, you know, giving off these signs and signals and how to identify that. But we also do lobby hard. Um, and we've now just passed, you know, with the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the fourth federal legislation that we've been working on and a lot of states work as well, um, working across three different presidential administrations now. So there is a, a way forward on both the gun issue, the mental health issue and the school safety issue. Um, but it requires being very creative with your solutions because there's too many um, challenges in the way of, of a lot of common sense work right now. Well, let's talk about that work and also mental health in schools. Uh, I was a big proponent of that and got a piece in the uh, reform of No Child Left Behind. In Minnesota, there are a number of schools where they have a mental health provider in the school. And it means that the teachers don't have to be the mental health provider. They can teach. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen is that it destigmatizes. I had one kid, we had a panel and one kid who was getting help from a mental health provider in the school would high five the mental health provider <laughs> in the halls. You know, mental health is health. Mental health is absolutely health and, and stigma needs to be removed around that. And, and it's also important that people realize that someone who has a diagnosed mental illness is not likely to become a school shooter or perform right. an act of violence, except perhaps suicide. Um, but, you know, mm -hmm. and those fire, you work to prevent as well, right? Yes, yes. We work hard. Um, we helped pass the Stand Up Act federally, which provides funding for suicide prevention programming in schools. And, and also there was a lot of funding for that in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act as well. You know, I think there was over a billion dollars invested in mental health for like community behavioral health centers, telehealth services, suicide prevention. So there's a lot of focus here, but it's removing that stigma because a lot of us have mental health issues or a lack of mental wellness. Um, and that's not about um, a, a diagnosable mental illness. This is about sure. um, problems that we're having. And what we see with a lot with kids is it's not about mental illness at all. It's really about a lack of conflict resolution skills or anger management or problem solving or feeling that the world is against them or someone's done something and they need to enact um, some form of revenge. That is not mental illness. This is about help for kids. And if they can see mental health counselors and we have more access to that as trusted adults, people to help them through rough spots, that's incredibly important because that in itself is going to change uh, a decision that a child might make um, from an unhealthy decision to a healthy decision. So, you know, I really applaud all the work on getting more funding for schools and community services to help address children's mental health needs as well as adults' mental health needs. Um, that's critically important. You, you have prevented some mass shootings. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, tell me, give me an example of one of those without, of course, break anyone's anonymity or something. Can you give us an example of how that works, how your, how Sandy Hook Promise works and a scenario that happened where yes. you intervened in a way that helped prevent this or? Sure. Um, well, we have programs that deal with the whole spectrum of violence from bullying and social isolation through dating violence, substance abuse, cutting all the way up to suicide and homicide. And we, the different programs handle different aspects of that, but our 
um, say something anonymous reporting solution. We have a, a 24-7, 365 crisis center down in Miami. And there have been, since we launched in 2018, around between us and our state partners that we work with, about 120,000 tips reported in from youth around the country who are seeing behaviors from somewhere else that um, suggests a uh, potential act of violence or self-harm. Some of these uh, of the things that we can talk about that we've averted, like I think we're over 400 suicides that we're known to have averted now. And the, the 10, we're waiting for one confirmation of one neck of, that happened last week, which could be the 11th, but of the 10 school shootings, some of them are in the public uh, arena and some aren't, but like the one that happened last week uh, was down in Pinellas County, Florida. A uh, 15-year-old student was reported by multiple teens to our anonymous reporting system of threats that he was making about shooting and bombing the school. These kids reached out. We worked with our school team and local law enforcement down there. They handed over these tips, verified them, and did an investigation to find out that there were uh, means, access, and plans. And the child was arrested that meets enough of the definition of being a credible planned school attack to have the means, access, and the plans. So that was one. Another one I remember um, very clearly from Houston, Texas, um, when we had multiple students tipping in about someone threatening to um, do a Sandy Hook, shoot up the school. We even had the would-be shooter call in our himself to our anonymous reporting system and say, you know, I, I, I'm ready. I've, I've got my Glock. I'm ready to roll. Try to find me. We did. Um, and, and that was another full plan, uh, means, access, plans, layout of the school, everything. So we were able to intervene on that one as well. And there's so many others that don't make it to the public headlines, um, but which is critically important. And, and to really, that's, that's what I see our job is to ensure that you don't ever see your school's name or district in a, in a headline in a newspaper because the act of violence, it was stopped before it could happen. I'm very proud of the work that we do, but it's also, it's at the intersection of being horrified that these acts continue to happen um, and how heartbreaking it is when I look at our, our system every morning and see, you know, get a pulse of the nation in terms of what's going on with kids today. What are they reporting on? And some of the stories are just so heartbreaking, but at the same time, I'm so proud of the fact that, you know, that's at least 10 more communities that will not experience what we experienced at Sandy Hook. And Ryan, I, I'm, I'm going to continue here with Nicole because you're both admirable. She's, I think, slightly more admirable than you. <laughs> so, Sorry, Ryan. Say, I just want to say um, that's a very low bar, but I do agree that um, Nicole beats me out here. So proceed. And, and I want to, if you don't mind, Nicole, ask you how you took what happened to you and um i've read your accounts of uh, that day and the next year and how you managed to take that and do this um that's a great question and i i don't know if i have a satisfactory answer to it i think it's part of my DNA. I, I've always been a very driven person in my corporate career before Sandy Hook, uh, you know, solving problems, figuring out ways to get things done. The first year after Sandy Hook, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I've got a very Swiss cheese memory, um, which I know is, is part of my PTSD. And there are some things that I can remember with almost scary clarity and other things that I, I can't recall at all. But I knew I wanted to do something because I didn't want another parent to feel this way. I still have a, a, a surviving son who was also at the school that day. He was in third grade. He is about to start college this week. So I, I'm, you know, I have an honor uh, and a duty to protect his life going forward and create a safer future for him. And I also have to honor Dylan, um, who was killed um, at six years old. And every morning, I kiss his urn. And I tell him I love him and I miss him. And I do the same thing when I go to bed at night. And it's, I need to do something. And everyone processes grief and trauma very differently. And I don't consider myself, I, I, a lot of people will say, oh, you're so strong. And I'm like, this has nothing to do with strength. 
This has to do with purpose. I know what this feels like. I know what it's like to hold my child's corpse in his coffin before his cremation to hold his hand. I, I know how the nightmares still plague me. I know the hoaxers um, out there that still attack. I know that things can be better. And I couldn't save my child, but I'm dedicating my life to ensure that other people are saved in his name. So that's why I do what I do. It's for him. And it's for all the other kids who need to go home to their families every day. Ryan, uh, Nicole brought up the hoaxers and, you know, the Alex Jones uh, is the case, of course. Uh, it's, it's hard to fathom how a person can be uh, so evil. But you're kind of familiar, not not with necessarily completely evil people, but people in the gun industry. And you've been kind of tracking what they're doing. What, 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 what's the deal with them? I think a lot of people do have a hard time conceptualizing how Alex Jones can gain popularity or how conspiracy theories like QAnon can start. But for me, these really were not in any way revelatory, right? Because I think that this all has its roots in the firearms industry, the sort of creation and then latching onto conspiracy theory as a way to drive political outcomes, gen people up, make them vote in what are basically irresponsible ways against your own self-interest, and then to derive profit from it really started with the NRA. And if you think about that, in the lead up to President Obama's first term, Wayne LaPierre would stand on stages and say things like, Barack Obama is going to rewrite the Constitution. And you know, I would look around going, oh, really? I've read the Constitution a bunch. Like, I, I didn't realize a president could rewrite the Constitution. But reasonably intelligent people, thousands of them, and then millions, would clap and cheer and believe it as if it were truth. And then they would reiterate these things. And so I think that sort of fertile field from people inside the gun industry and then, you know, gun stores, that really laid the groundwork for somebody like Jones who could take that and then really, really monetize it and really spread it and really make people act in irresponsible and irrational ways. And sadly, I know that Jones has had a few setbacks and I wish they would have been far worse. And I wish the guy was in a very dark cell with no penny for whatever, however much life he has left. But we didn't get all of that. Um, we got a bit of it and he got, you know, some money taken away from him. Um, but I can tell you that what I'm seeing in the firearms industry now with regards to irresponsible advertising and embracing of conspiracy theory, um, election denying everything else is getting worse, not better. So, if we think that the worst is behind us, I think perhaps we need to readjust. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ryan Bussey and Nicole Hockley. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. All right, we're back with Ryan Bussey and Nicole Hockley. Nicole, what what are I mean, you've been in these talks with Republicans and their resistance to gun reform. Where would you like us to go in terms of the next steps? I, there must be some of them who are going and with the evidence is this this legislation after Evaldi. Mm -hmm. There must be some realization by them that, okay, this is 
this is a real problem and we need to do stuff about it. So yeah. where, what's next? What's possible next and where would you like us to go? I'm glad you made that distinction because I think what I'd like us to do next is probably not what's possible. What's that? Let, let me hear what you... What I think is possible I think I, is focused on... is I think safe storage is possible. I think that there is a lot of appetite um, from, you know, responsible gun owners do keep their guns safe and, and their ammunition separate. And when we think about school shootings, when we think about suicide by firearm, all of that is um, due to access or the vast majority of it is due to access. And if we can have legislation uh, to ensure that um, families are securely storing their firearms and that there is perhaps um, some sort of penalty for those who don't so to really incentivize it. I think there's a lot of appetite there, but I, my, my sense is we're not going to see any movement until after the midterms. Um, I think this, you know, the, when I look back at even over the last six years, what's happened in the political space when it comes to, um, gun violence prevention, you know, from this going to a thing that you never talk about to something that now people campaign on. We've come a long way in a short space of time it, it, it is one way of looking at it. And I think that the, with the, the passing um, of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act this past summer, that showed a lot of Republicans that there is a way forward. You know, it wasn't enough for the Democrat side. It was too much for some Republicans, but it got passed. And I think people will realize that there is a way to meet the needs of um, what Americans want without absolutely destroying their careers, which was the fear that we were hearing from a lot of politicians when we were lobbying for background checks back in 2013, as Ryan mentioned. Um, so I think there's appetite now once we get through the midterms to look at safe storage. I would love to see more legislation, uh, bipartisan legislation on how we regulate or restrict purchase of semi-automatic rifles with high-capacity magazines. Mm -hmm. Some people call that assault weapons ban. As Ryan said, sometimes you get nailed for calling it an assault weapon. Um, so, you know, the language is important here, but I think that that's a further step in the future. I don't think the appetite is there yet in D.C., um, but I think safe storage is, is definitely possible. W was there a piece in this latest legislation on high-capacity clips? No, and that's something we've been lobbying for a while is restrictions, because um, thinking about hunting and fair game laws in some states where you can only have so many pieces of ammunition in the clip at one time to be fair to the animals, but we don't have that when we're talking about being fair to human beings. Correct. Um, I've always been uh, personally lobbying for high capacity magazine restrictions, um, because I know that that would have given a chance for more kids in my son's classroom to escape and potentially my own son. Uh, that would have made a difference for a lot of people. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. And it comes back to that hunting argument uh, that Ryan pointed out. That's that's the sticking point right now. But the idea that you need, you know, 30 shots to bring down a deer well, I've heard it's more about like um, prairie dogs. Um, Ryan, you might be able to correct me on that if I'm if I'm wrong. That it's more uh, the prairie animals and smaller ones that you need to shoot more. So prairie dogs dig up the ground, and which makes it, it, it they can destroy a field. Right? Is that the that's that the idea? These are um, these are red herrings because you can hunt or shoot prairie dogs with single shot bolt action rifles too. Um, you don't need them, and and but they're kind of small, the critters, and they run away. Look, there are lots of other options for this, and many states have magazine. Uh, capacity prohibitions on hunting guns. For instance, you can't go into the field with a gun of more than X capacity. A lot of times it's three or five. And so even where these AR-15s are used to hunt sometimes, you have to have very small, low capacity magazines with them. So there's, there's lots of options. I guess what I'm saying is it's not like you have to have an AR-15 or you can't do this activity anymore. It would be like saying, okay, I want to go to the grocery store and I really, really, really need that Formula One car. I'm like, okay, it'll get you there, but, you know, there are other ways to get to the grocery store. And, and presumably there are prairie dogs like in the um, 18th and 19th centuries. There were. 
And um, yes, and we they were, were able to farm AR fifteens. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We were not hunting them with AR fifteens then. That's for sure. Okay. Well, uh, I think one solution that gets proposed a lot <laughs> is uh, giving teachers guns. Is that um, a good idea? <laughs> no way. I mean, I, you know, and it's it's um. This is my personal opinion, and I have heard from educators in more rural areas where it would be um, difficult uh, for law enforcement to get there in time if there were a significant problem. So, I, 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 you know, I can hear all sides of the argument. However, a teacher's job is to teach and to build community and to ensure that children are safe and working with each other and, you know, learning their reading, writing, arithmetic and, and other social and life skills um, to prepare them for outside of school. Having guns in the schools in teachers, first of all, there's there's a whole potential for access there by a student right. in the class. In the in the horrific situation that a teacher would actually have to use it to ensure that they um, I mean, we've seen trained law enforcement or trained um, gun owners not be able to handle um, a shooter or be afraid of firepower from another shooter, for example. So the idea that a teacher, exactly. So the idea that a teacher who maybe is not very proficient with firearms, um, that they would be able to react appropriately in a highly stressful situation, such as a school shooting and not do any damage to any of the students that they're trying to protect, I think is kind of ludicrous. And I, I have not heard a majority of teachers wanting this. And then when you look at some states that are even minimizing the number of training hours that a teacher has, it, it's, it's really minimizing the, the massive responsibility you're asking a teacher to take on. So I'm personally very against that. I think, you know, where we have SROs or law enforcement, there are some changes and best practices that I would like to see there in terms of um, SROs in some schools and how they shouldn't be involved in class disciplinary yeah, actions, SROs, for example. SROs, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, um, schools re- school resource officers. Quite okay. often they're armed. They're also a protection element. There's evidence to say that they work. There's evidence to say that they don't work. So, you know, the jury's out on that one. But the idea of arming teachers, I am wholeheartedly against. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, can you give an argument? (laughs) I mean, I I guess a teacher in a rural school who knows what they're doing and knows how to lock it up and keep them (laughs) safe. I don't know. Uh, That might be okay. But the idea of, you know, Mrs. Moline, you know, my fourth grade teacher having a gun. um, (laughs) Not a good idea to me. I just so admire you, Nicole. We we met immediately after this. You guys came to Washington. Mm-hmm. That was very, yeah, very difficult. Um, I, I couldn't believe that we couldn't get the background checks done. I couldn't believe that we couldn't get an assault weapons ban. I just, but that was me then, you know. Mm-hmm. Times have changed a lot, and you know, I'm still. I think for, for us, when that, you know, when background checks failed, which was seen to be something that everyone was for, and even at one point, the, uh, the NRA was not getting in the way of, of those talks, which is kind of their way of letting something happen without them commenting on it. But then I think it was even a further uh, right group from them that, that caused a kerfuffle over that. And then the NRA came down hard. But it's um, when that didn't pass... For us, you know, for us at Sandy Hook Promise, that was a reality check on just how bad things were and why we needed to go a different way to create change. And that's, you know, our long-term behavior change strategy by teaching kids in schools how to prevent violence before it happens. And it also started our, our more incremental strategy on gun safety reform, mental health and school safety, which is slow going and can be very frustrating at times, but it is chipping away at things so that we can then handle some of the bigger things, but giving space for opposing sides and, and perspectives to come in and have some discussions. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to keep the fight going. I want to create solutions. And, and I think that's a big part of what we've seen over the last 10 years and what our strategy is to continue to go forward. Okay. Uh, Ryan, uh, let me ask you about where the NRA is now. I know they have, <laughs> 
some uh, problems with uh, some of the leadership taking a lot of money in various ways. Uh, what, what's going on with the NRA now? Where is it? So it is, you know, a lot of people ask me that, and it, and it is weakened, right? They're not at the apex of their political power. But much like Trumpism, NRAism, which now infects all of our politics, I think right down to like our local school boards, where this sort of hell no, all or nothingism is now prevalent, it, it infects everything in our society. And so even though NRA itself is not at the apex of its power, there are now fringe organizations which are becoming less fringe, which are far more radical, you know, far more overtly anti-democratic. I mean, you think that the NRA said the quiet part out loud? Well, these folks really say the quiet part out loud. And they're sort of filling what in is the that? What is the quiet? Well, the fact loud. that, that um, anti-democratic, pro-authoritarianism justifications for guns and gun ownership and what guns can do to society and how the Second Amendment is literally unfettered. In fact, the, the term that they like to use a lot is the phrase from the Second Amendment, shall not be infringed, right? This used to be a crazy outlandish thing to say, but they literally believe that there should be no gun laws in the United States. So like, Al, you should be able to own howitzers, M1 Abrams tanks, whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, for whatever reason you want. This used to be quiet. Now it's literally out in the open. And I think much like are the politics on the right may be set to worsen instead of get better because the incentives in the system are for there to be more Marjorie Taylor Greens and more Matt Gate. right? They get attention, they get reelected, they make money, they sell books, they get to fundraise. The same sort of things are being led by the firearms industry. And so I think we should prepare ourselves for, you know, much more frightening outcomes at, at the same time. I think what Nicole discussed with regards to the recent legislation. And, and I was there at the White House, probably like Nicole was when it was signed. I think that's a very hopeful sign. That means that the US general public is sort of throwing up their hands and saying, we've had enough of this shit. Look, 65 senators voted yes for that. As you know, Al, like you couldn't get 65 senators to vote yes that ice cream was good. And yet we had 65 senators. Yes, vote you for could. That. <laughs> I, I voted for that. Okay. We just wouldn't so, agree what what flavor. That was uh, that was the only legislation uh, Jim Inhofe ever. Passed. Yeah, yeah. But Jim Inhofe would have melted ice cream, right? Um, but so, but That's the, right. the point is, there's something bubbling up in the populace that is pushing back against this dangerous radicalization and the terrible spillover effects we're seeing in places like Highland Park and Buffalo and Uvalde. And, you know, in streets across urban areas across our country every day. So it's bubbling up. And, and it's so similar to our political ethos where you have a worsening situation on the right. And you also have a group of what I call or Steve Schmidt calls like the frustrated majority. I see the, both of those things happening at the same time. Nicole, do you remember, uh, were you watching like our hearings on this and our business meetings on, uh, on guns right after? you know, when we were debating this in the Judiciary Committee? Um, elements of it. Uh, and this is part of where my memory's a little, you know, oh, uh, faltering. Yes, Jesus Christ, yeah. <laughs> no, so, but, yeah. do you remember this at all? Like Ted Cruz going after Dianne Feinstein, who was, you know, the author of the Assault Weapons Ban, both in 94 and then uh, this iteration. And he goes like, you're going to ban some guns and, and the Second Amendment is, you know, right there. What books would you ban? Do you remember this exchange? <laughs> Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, there's a okay. lot of similar exchanges like that around cars and, you know, pools and whatever. Yep. So, so here's one of my regrets, uh, one of my number of regrets. And there's not that many, but in the Senate, which is he said, what books would you, uh, you know, make? It? And I had it and I should have said it, which is, well, um, how about the book Ted Cruz is a pedophile? <laughs> that would have had an interesting response from him. Unless you were a pedophile, that would be kind of, wouldn't that be uh, slanderous? I mean, wouldn't that violate something? <laughs> and, and God damn, I wish I had said that. Maybe someday I'll, we'll get to see you actually say that to him. I've kind of told him <laughs> already that he's a dick. 
I've told him that. So, um, speaking of dicks, so who's the worst in the Senate? <laughs> on the, have you talked to anyone? You don't have to say anyone, but what, what have some of the worst conversations you've had, Nicole? Oh, there's or been one? quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear this. What are some of the worst conversations? Uh, well, I, I, we never name and shame. Um, yeah, of course. So, of course. never, ever. But I've actually had more respect for senators who are very honest about why they're not going to vote for something rather than I'd lose. <laughs> there, right. there, you know, there are, there are good people on both sides of the aisle. I, be, I firmly believe that, but um, the ones that stick out are um, cowards who say, well, I, I just voted on this other issue and I can't vote for yours because that would hurt my career. I've had uh, back in 2013, we had one who literally danced around the room, wouldn't sit down I was just like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about this. Or I don't know what's going on. And I was like, this is like the single biggest thing being talked about right now. So I don't understand how, you know, this is all that's been in the news and, and in DC for the last several weeks, and you don't know anything about it. You know, I also have met politicians and senators in particular that um, I get disappointed by the fact that they, they'll believe whatever the last person in the room said. Um, so let's say the NRA lobbyist was in there right before us, they could say a blatant lie about what the legislation was doing. And someone would believe them rather than doing any fact checking. And it would be down to me, or one of the members of, of promise who were there to actually point out the, the, the actual wording in the legislation where, you know, to, to show that that wasn't the truth. So it's, it's a lot of interesting things. Or I've had, you know, someone say to my face, well, you know, I appreciate why you're here because you need closure. And oh. yeah, and I'm like, you have no idea what you, I got. I'll try to assume positive intent here, but that is incredibly insulting because th that closure is nothing to do with this. Um, so, you know, you get you get all sorts, but I've not I've kept away from the people like the Marjorie Taylor Greens because uh, there's just no point. There's just no point there. So. there. There is no point. But I'm thinking of like the guy who believed the last person in the room. Does John Thune come to mind? I'm never going to mention anything. <laughs> you know, I'm not as diplomatic as Nicole is. Now, I think, um, so, you know, I testified in, in front of two congressional committees. And I think the, the people that frustrate me the most or that anger me the most, the sort of crazy true believers, honestly, they, I find them dangerous and on the fringe and, um, it's frightening that people in America follow them, but it's the people that know better that piss me off. And there are lots of those in Congress that I think Nicole sort of hints at, like when they dance around the room and say, I can't make this vote because I just made some other vote. Like that means they know better. That means they know what's right and wrong and they still mm -hmm. won't do it. The, the true believers, I, the crazy ones, I sort of dismiss like the, the Andrew Clyde who tried to tell me that uh, Remington 7400 hunting gun was exactly the same as an AR-15. I'm like, really? Well, then why isn't the U.S. military carrying the Remington 7400? I've never seen that. <laughs> like he didn't like that. You know, and Jim Jordan was on that same committee um, trying to to question me. It's the reasonably smart, decent people who know better. Those are the ones that piss me off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Guys, <laughs> thank you both. And Ryan, no insult, but especially you, Nicole. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, uh, Nicole, from me and from all parents, from all Americans, um, thank you. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. 
Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.